NASA was warned. December 22, 1988. Deep inside the dark halls of the Goddard Space Flight Center in Washington, D.C., a ticking time bomb is set. Thousands of computers in facilities around the country unwittingly spread an unsolicited malicious program set to go off in less than 36 hours. It comes with an ominous message. Hi, how are ya? I had a hard time preparing all the presents. It isn't quite an easy job. I'm getting more and more letters from the children every year, and it's not so easy to get the terrible Rambo guns, tanks, and spaceships up here at the North Pole. But now the good part is coming. Distributing all the presents with my sleigh and the deers is real fun. When I slide down the chimneys, I often find a little present offered by the children or even a little brandy from the father. Yeah! Anyhow, the chimneys are getting tighter and tighter every year. I think I'll have to put my diet on again. And after Christmas, I've got my big holidays. Now stop computing and have a good time at home. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Your Father Christmas. Hi, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberreason. If you've listened to our two-part episode on the Morris Worm, you'll remember how groundbreaking an event it was. The Morris Worm began spreading around the US on November 2nd, 1988, and in only a few days' time had infected an estimated 10% of all the computers then in existence. It was a wake-up call that this new technology, a quote-unquote worm, could cause so much chaos in such a short time. But there's another worm that affected just as many computers as Morris did, not even two months later. It was called Father Christmas. Its main target was SPAN, the Space Physics Analysis Network. SPAN was NASA's operating network, connecting their various teams and facilities, as well as some related government organizations. Remember in 1988 that the Internet as we know it did not exist. Fewer than 100,000 computers were in use around the world, most of them connected only to other computers within their same organization, university, or government. From the network protocol, to the operating systems, to the computer models themselves, SPAN ran over a network comprised end-to-end of technologies built by the Massachusetts-based Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC. DEC supplied networking tech to organizations around the world, which together comprise the DECnet. Overall, the system worked quite well. The company's VAX computers, as they were called, were powerful for their time, and for the first seven or eight years of its existence, the SPAN network was productive and secure. This was the Internet before the Internet, with all the positive and negative connotations therein. As a NASA report from the time presciently noted, quote, the DECnet, on one hand, has solved the problem of transparency between computers regardless of what DECnet network they are connected to. On the other hand, the DECnet Internet provides the connectivity to make one network's security problem 
everyone's concern, end quote. As systems manager for SPAN at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, John McMahon, nicknamed Fuzzy Face for his fluffy beard, was the guy who's the world's best scientists would call for tech support. Being part of the organization that put a man on the moon, you'd have to say his job was relatively less dramatic than that of many of his peers. But that began to change beginning on December 22nd of 1988. At 4.52 p.m. East Coast time, an unknown individual using a computer at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland unleashed a program to the DECnet Internet, which connected SPAN with various other wide area networks running over the same DEC infrastructure. Not 10 minutes later, John McMahon noticed the presence of the strange file named hi.com on his network in D.C. Hi.com what we now call the Father Christmas Worm, was a simple program, a command file type written in DEX digital command language. It began by searching the network for random node numbers. Once it hit on a legitimate node, it would attempt to run a copy of itself, either by gaining access to the target system through the default username and password DECnet and DECnet, or by exploiting a legitimate built-in program that allowed a node to start a task on a remote computer. If Hi.com fails both attempts to run on the target system, it deletes that copy of Hi.com. If it succeeds, it's loaded into memory and the original file is deleted. Then it waits. The worm will check the computer's clock, and if it's between 12 a.m. and 12.30 a.m. on the morning of Christmas Eve 1988, it compiles the list of all users of the computer system and sends them each a friendly letter from Santa. The Father Christmas Worm is less well-known today, partly because Morris came first, and partly because Morris was inherently more destructive. In fact, where Morris was a story of drama and intrigue, Father Christmas was little more than a fun side note of cyber history. For its part, NASA distributed two technical reports on the Father Christmas worm. They introduced a new auditing software that would allow system administrators to more rapidly address future network vulnerabilities. All computer users at the organization were advised to strengthen their passwords. But it was not enough. You know the saying, it's not rocket science? Like when your boss leans against the wall of your cubicle, looks down at you and says in that snide tone, finish the report, Jim, it's not rocket science. There are a very select number of people in the world for which that saying doesn't apply. People who go into work every day to do the remarkable work of sending a giant machine into outer space. People who, when their boss walks up to their cubicle, are allowed to say, Give me a break! It's rocket science! On October 16, 1989, those people went into work preparing to launch a space shuttle that very day. But when they sat down to their computers, they were met with an unexpected greeting. Wank, their screens read. Your system has been officially wanked. You talk of times of peace for all, and then prepare for war. 
Not one year after the Morris Worm, fall 1989, very few people knew what a computer worm was. In fact, some NASA employees probably didn't know what the word wank means either. It's a predominantly British term for something that a man does, well, by himself, if you know what I mean. The confusion would have only grown worse when, in logging into their computers, those employees were met with a non-stop rolling screen of all their files being deleted one by one. Deleted file. Deleted file. Deleted file. Deleted file. Deleted file. Deleted file. The computer was methodically deleting years' worth of sensitive information, representing billions of dollars of government investment and research. And there was no way to stop it. The wankworm was structurally much like Father Christmas. They were written in the same coding language. They used the same method of finding new computers in a network by conducting random node number searches. Most important of all, both worms leveraged the same crippling security vulnerability common to all computers of the time. The lack of network segmentation allowing them to spread quickly and effectively. Recall how Father Christmas searched for accounts with the username DECNET and password DECNET. Wankworm did the same, but added a few more common strings like system and field. It's because when VAX computers were built and sent off to NASA, Switzerland, or anywhere else, they'd come preset with, among other things, a default admin account. These high-privilege accounts came preset with standard username and password combination, like DECnet and DECnet. NASA employees had been warned about this type of security vulnerability already. After Father Christmas, you'll recall, a notice was sent to span network users, encouraging them to change their passwords. Plus, changing default passwords and making sure your password is different from your account name is cybersecurity 101. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that. It turns out, though, that even if you are a rocket scientist, you might still not understand that. As Wank broke into more and more computers, it developed a database of high-privileged network accounts. Some of those it's cracked were no more secure than username system, password system. But Wankworm didn't just crack weakly secured accounts. Within hours, it had penetrated not only a majority of the SPAN network, but also other connected networks like the High Energy Physics Networks, or HEPnet, supporting the U.S. Department of Energy. Underground, a 1997 book authored by Sulet Dreyfus and researched by the now-famous Julian Assange, paints a portrait of what went on inside the halls of NASA and the DOE that October 1989, and it's not pretty. John McMahon at NASA in D.C. and Kevin Oberman, a network manager at a DOE-adjacent lab in San Francisco, began investigations. Both would come to find that, as difficult as it was to uncover and stop the wankworm, half their work would be dealing with human errors. That's because the wankworm was designed for psychological damage, not physical. Like how it would show computer users a running list of their deleted files, presenting before your eyes in real time each individual file on your computer being unthinkingly, ceaselessly deleted. 
It must have been utterly terrifying to scientists whose life's work, representing countless hours and dollars, was disappearing for no good reason. When McMahon and Oberman actually looked, however, they discovered that all this was a hoax. Wankworm didn't actually delete any files at all. That delete, delete, delete screen was a prank. In one case, for instance, a beset manager called McMahon to tell him that the wank worm destroyed his whole system. McMahon later recalled, quote, he just didn't believe us when we told him that the worm was mostly a set of practical jokes. So that manager reinitialized his system, returning it to factory settings and in the process deleting all his data, doing the wank worm's job for it. fake deleting sensitive data was very much in line with the Wank's author's strange sense of humor. Another component of the worm leveraged the instant messaging feature of DECnet computers to send little one-liners to other machines in the network. One-liners like, quote, the FBI is watching you, and nothing is faster than the speed of light. To prove this yourself, try opening the refrigerator door before the light comes on, end quote. McMahon, Oberman, and their small security teams were half cybersecurity incident response, half customer service support, as they worked to both mitigate the wankworm and mitigate those panicked by it. NASA, for one, had no centralized map of its own network. Nobody, McMahon included, had a clear picture of its size, scope, or orientation. So being John McMahon, trying to track the origin and path of the wankworm was like being an epidemiologist trying to track a plague without having a world map. John was receiving frantic phone calls about computers he didn't previously know existed. In trying to reach managers at other NASA locations, he found the contact information on file largely outdated. Then matters got even worse when the manager at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory decided to take their segment of the network offline. You can understand why he did it. He was able to stop the worm from spreading to JPL by simply disconnecting from the rest of SPAN. However, JPL was a routing center for the rest of SPAN, and by taking down JPL, many other branches of the network went down too. Wankworm was prevented from reaching these areas of the network, but so was John McMahon. We're here at the UC Berkeley Seismology Station where they reported the strong earthquake at exactly 5.04 p.m. Trying to defeat one of the first ever major computer worms must have been difficult enough. Now, imagine having to do that while the walls of the room you're in, your desk, your keyboard, are all shaking. On Tuesday, October 17th, 1989, at 17 hours, 4 minutes, 15 seconds, Pacific Daylight Time, a strong motion earthquake emanated from a location 60 miles south-southeast of San Francisco, near Loma Prieta, in the Santa Cruz mountain range. The largest to strike the San Malicious Life is sponsored by Cyberism, an end-to-end cybersecurity solution built to empower defenders. So how does Cyberism empower defenders? Here's John Breen, head of global IT security and cyber operations at FlowServe. FlowServe is a global corporation in about 60 countries, um, nine business languages, 
about 20,000 employees. We make pumps, valves, and seals. And then uh, we do nuclear contracts, military contracts. Our intellectual property is extremely valuable. My entire security team has, our lives would be very different right now if it wasn't for Cyber Reason. I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would be sitting back at the office, cranking through 15,000 machines to get them all restored or, or purchase new ones if we had to, depending on how bad it was. So Cyber Reason is watching the shop, watching the, the store while we're sleeping. And that's something that I would have to augment with staff without a platform as good as Cyber Reason. Before Cyber Reason was in our environment, we were playing a lot of whack-a-mole, so to speak, you know, trying to uh, run around and, and, and deal with things that we were understaffed, ill-equipped to handle, um, and this just really helped to fill um, the gap that we needed, not just with the managed service, but the actual solution itself is very uh, good at um, self-remediation, uh, sinkholing IPs and traffic that shouldn't be um, because it's an indicator of compromise, for example. And that's just one task that myself and my team wouldn't, don't have to do anymore. We had, in the past, many challenges around lateral movement of, of, of malops. And with Cyber Reason in place, that just doesn't exist anymore. And it's really, really good at protecting uh, from those types of threats, whether it's ransomware or any other type of malop, CNC, elevation, privilege elevation, um, I think that uh, the visibility gets us and the um, comprehensive understanding of what the threat is and how it's moving as well as the ability to do queries and, and, and see kind of threat patterns, how, they're, how they might be evolving or how they might have come in, um, hooking into um, uh, threat exchanges for um, hashes that are constantly coming out, uh, indicators of compromise that are constantly coming out. all put in the back end of Cyber Reason um, without us having to load it. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. We love Cyber Reason. Four seconds after the structural motion was perceived by people driving on the viaduct, the progressive failure radiated north and southward from each of these sites. Approximately two seconds later, the entire structure had collapsed. This is only a summary of the California Highway Patrol's response and findings concerning the October 17, 1989 seismic shaking of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge and the Cypress Street Viaduct, two of the effects of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Kevin Oberman released his anti-wank worm program at exactly 5.04 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on October 17, 1989. We know this because, as he was making the final touches and getting ready to send his report out to all corners of the HEPnet, the 6.9 magnitude Luma Perita earthquake struck the Bay Area in California. Just as quickly as he clicked send on his email, did Kevin have to rush out of his office for fear of his own safety. Luckily, Oberman escaped unharmed and his anti-wank program worked. It was a very simple fix, actually, turning one of Wankworm's simplest features against it. Like Father Christmas, when Wankworm first entered a new computer system, it would check for a version of itself already running there. 
perhaps the writers of both of these programs had seen what happened to Robert Morris Worm, how it would infect the same computers so many times over that those computers were essentially broken in the process. If Wank were already present on the target system it visited, the incoming copy of the Wank Worm would simply self-destruct. Taking advantage of this feature, Oberman simply wrote a program that pretended to be the Wankworm. Anybody whose computer was not yet infected could run anti-wank so that if the Wankworm did come poking around, it would mistake a harmless program for a version of itself and self-destruct on the spot. John McMahon distributed his own version of anti-wank, and by the end of the day, on Tuesday, October 17, 1989, just over 36 hours after the wankworm first released to DECnet, NASA, the Department of Energy, and other affected organizations had been cured. Five days later, John McMahon received a call. The wankworm was back with a vengeance. Wankworm 2.0 was not fooled by Oberman's anti-wank software. When it entered a new computer system, it would simply destroy any iteration of the worm it saw, whether it be a version of itself, the earlier worm, or the anti-wank program. Worse than that, though, it rewrote the passwords to accounts it broke into. Now, users were not only infected, but locked out of their computers. This spelled doom for anybody affected, but especially system administrators. Admins are who you turn to if you're locked out and need to reset your password. But what if the admins themselves were locked out? Wank 1.0 only pretended to cause damage, but Wank 2.0 very much did. But help was on the way. Bernard Perrault was a systems manager at the French National Institute of Nuclear and Particle Physics, one of the European organizations, along with CERT, the University of Switzerland, and others, that was just as affected by the wankworm as NASA and the DOE. Perrault came up with an anti-worm, perhaps even more clever than Obermann's was the first time around. He took advantage of one component that didn't change between the first and second versions of the wankworm. WriteList.dat is a file which lists all user accounts on a VAX computer, and the wankworm would attempt to break into accounts it found in WriteList as a bridge point into new targeted systems. Perot, in order to stop the second wankworm, built wank underscore shoot, a program that would rename a computer's write list file and replace it with a decoy. When wank 2.0 pursued the decoy list, it would run into the cyberbomb hidden inside. Nearly two weeks later, wank underscore shoot had successfully, finally, defeated the wankworm. It's November 1989 now, the wankworm is defeated, and everything is back to normal. Maybe you're expecting me to finish with a nice, the end. But what if I told you that everything you just heard is only half of the story? In the next episode of Malicious Life, we're going back to the beginning, on a journey to reveal the wankworm's creators. This journey will take us 10,000 miles across the ocean to Australia and 588 million kilometers out to space, to Jupiter. What does the Challenger space shuttle disaster and an Australian rock band have to do 
with a computer worm. All that and more next time on Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Stay with us for the last segment of our show, Malware Exploder. CyberReason's researchers will tell us about interesting malware they've analyzed recently. Special thanks this episode to Sulet Dreyfus and Julian Assange's book, Underground, which provided much of the research material for this episode. If you're interested in reading more about the wankworm, you can access the book online. Nearly half a million people already have. It's quite a good read. As always, you can reach out to me at, at @ranlevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, on Twitter and ran at ranlevy.com on email. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our previous episodes with full transcripts. And follow at malicious.life on Twitter for updates on new episodes as they air. Malicious Life is also on CastBox, the most advanced and feature-rich podcast listening app. I'm a CastBox user myself, so if you subscribe to Malicious Life on CastBox, you can also reach me there in the comments section of our channel. CastBox is available on all platforms, including Android, iOS, CarPlay, and Android Auto. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at CyberReason.com. And now, Malware Exploder. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Malware Exploder. Each time we talk to a security researcher from CyberReason about interesting malware they've analyzed and try to understand the techniques, ideas, and trends in the malware world. And today we have with us in the studio Eli Salem, security analyst at CyberReason Global Security Operations, or SOC. Hi, Eli. Hello. And our star malware today is what's known as Astraroth Trojan. That's yep. quite a mouthful for me. So before we dive uh, uh, into the malware itself, I understand that Astaroth is aimed mostly at Brazilian mm -hmm. users and organizations. We already discussed this particular fact in a previous segment of our show, but let's give our listeners a quick reminder. Why Brazil? What is the cyber scene in Brazil? So the most important thing that happened in Brazil in 2018 is that it was a year of election. So uh, a large portion of phishing mails uh, that, that happened in Brazil and happened specifically that regard to Astaroth were um, related to some candidates or some, let's say, hey, these candidates need your vote, so come open this mail and help him. So, yeah, large, large... It's uh, a form of social engineering. Yes, exactly. So it's not easy being a Brazilian these days, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, okay, so describe to us the general outline of the Astaroth attack. So, like uh, a lot of uh, phishing campaigns, this, fish, uh, this campaign started uh, as a phishing mail. Uh, the, the mail was uh, with attachment of a zip file that contains an LNK file. So this LNK file is basically a shortcut. I mean, like in Windows, you can press it and it will bring you to the, the place it aims to bring you. But in this case, this shortcut uh, had a parameter that invoked uh, WMI. And this WMI um, uh, gained access to a remote uh, page that... Uh, contain the the procedures of downloading the malware itself and bring it to to the infected machine. 
and we'll dive a little deeper mm-hmm. into LNK files mm-hmm. in a second. But after ac- the actual malware is downloaded into mm-hmm. the computer, what then? So when the, the malware is downloaded, it firstly needs to check if, if the target is what it's looking for. I mean, uh, in, in some asteroid cases, we saw that the malware checks if it's on Brazilian computer. And if not, it's, it's just not executing himself, itself. So, and if yes, it starts to download an additional payload. This malware didn't come as a once. It came as several, um, several... Um, Modules that yes, download several, one after the other. Mm-hmm, yes, several files. Uh, that masquerade themselves as a picture, so the uh, uh, people that see it cannot uh, guess it's, it is malware because he see a picture. So after that, it deploys itself using a lolbins, which is a, a method that calls living of the land, and it uses a native Windows operating system processes to execute it and. The model can decide whether it uh, deploys itself uh, using a specific, uh, two specific processes of gas technology and a vast, uh, or if it don't find them, so it will load uh, through um, through uh, Windows native uh, processes. And then it goes to the actual act of actually yes, stealing after, credentials mm-hmm. and targeting mainly, if I understand correctly, banking organizations mm-hmm. or yes. banking accounts. Yes. So just to kind of give a, the general outline again, we're talking about an attack that starts mm-hmm. as a, as a, a link uh, mm-hmm. via uh, some sort of spear phishing or phishing mm-hmm. attack. And then there's a download. We have uh, geofencing, I mean, checking to see that you're actually a user in Brazil, yes. and only then the attack commences. Yes. But let's begin with diving deeper into the malicious LNK file. So what is an LNK file? So an LNK file is a legitimate file of Windows. You can create it by, uh, by right-click on your mouse, and you, see, you will see an LNK file. So as I said, LNK is basically a shortcut. You can press it, and and in this LNK file you have some uh, variable that called calls target, and then you put the path of where you want to be uh, to go when you press it. So the attackers uh, put a command in in this uh, variable that inside this command was a command to get files or invoke uh, WMI process to reach a remote uh, server that will uh, have uh, malicious um, uh, commands in it and to invoke them. So a lot of the malicious activity did not occur in the computer. It occurred in a remote computer, in a and remote server. And the LNK server. file is just a pointer yes. to an actual script that resides exactly even off the computer itself, mm-hmm. some remote server. Yes, and in a lot of cases, LNK file target, uh, it's not target, but it contains a PowerShell command in it. So if you press it, it will it will execute the PowerShell command, although you didn't want to or even open a PowerShell command. Okay, so that's one interesting aspect of the Astaroth Trojan. Yeah. And the other prominent feature of this malware is its use of two interesting processes. One is, is for the Avast antivirus, mm-hmm. and one is for GAS Technologia, which is, I understand, a very popular software or organization in Brazil. So first thing first, why Avast? I mean, it's an antivirus. Yeah. Why would a malware author use an antivirus? So we need to remember two things. One, the, the attack was occurred in Brazil. So about the gas technology, 
this process is related to a Brazilian security vendor. So by statistics, the possibility of finding this process will be in Brazilian machine. So they try to maximize that, ex- that aspect. Uh, in Avast, it, it is the most popular uh, antivirus in the world. So they consider, okay, if we don't have uh, a security vendor uh, from this state, they will probably will have the most popular uh, antivirus in the world. So we should try this one too. And um, So give us like a general idea of what the malware does mm-hmm. so, with these processes. Okay. What is it using for? So uh, the, mal- the malware came as a module. And a module is like a portable executable file, but it's a .dll at the end. Uh, and modules can be loaded and been executed. We see it in Windows in processes like HanDLL32 or RegisVR, and those are legitimate native Windows processes that all their purpose are to load this module. So a vast uh, contained a, a specific process that they create, and his uh, purpose is to load modules. So when the attacker um, executed uh, the, the, the malicious module through Avast, the, creator, the creators of this process didn't want or didn't think that it will be used as malicious because this process is, is uh, supposed to be... Um, Trusted. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a high-privileged process mm-hmm. in the system, probably. Yes, but as, as um, in the same case of uh, the Windows uh, processes, it can be used for malicious process purposes because of its nature to just load modules. This also for gas technology. The process that's been used is also capable of loading modules. It didn't meant uh, to load malicious modules, but it is part of its capability. So, so it was exploited. Yeah. Yes. Which bring me brings me to the final question. Mm-hmm. How can uh, software developers let's say, design their software so that it will be less exploitable in this kind of way? So I think it's it's always a matter of design and always a matter of secure code. So you need to verify that if, uh, let's say, a module is loaded by one of your processes, only specific files can be loaded by this process. I mean, if you are a company, and you have a process that load uh, files, so only your files, only your specific company files can be loaded through this process. You can't just give everyone the access to do it. Uh, and this is what we saw in this, in this case. Elisa Len, thank you very much. It was thank very you. interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.